This morning we will conclude that little paragraph on the second coming, one of the most striking descriptions of Christ's coming, and we'll focus primarily on the part where we will return with him, which would be a very glorious occasion to return with Jesus Christ. People think, at least unbelievers, they think that they use a little phrase, the end of the world. Well, the second coming is not the end of the world. The second coming actually begins a very glorious period of time in the future. Glorious for those that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and those that do not. It actually begins the end of all things for them. So it's a glorious time, and it begins a period that the book of Revelation tells us is a thousand years, and I think that is the end of world history. So the unbeliever, when he speaks of the end of the world, quote, unquote, that's totally unbiblical, totally inaccurate, because the second coming is not the end of the world. The second coming is basically introducing us to a new era, and this is the passage that tells us what it's going to look like at that beginning. So we've uh, thoroughly introduced our passage. We spent a lot of time looking at that period of time after the church is gone called tribulation. And today on your outline sheet, the same one from the last couple of weeks, I'm going to give you the contrasts between two phases of the coming. And I think there's a lot of confusion in the church concerning that. And hopefully that'll clarify that there are definitely two, two phases or two stages of the second coming. And one, I believe, comes before this period of tribulation. Jesus, at least in the Olivet Discourse, does not mention it. He does mention the rapture somewhere else. Does anyone know where Jesus mentions the rapture? Probably the first mention of it. Upper Room Discourse. Chapter 14, first couple of verses there. That's a reference to the rapture. Now, it doesn't use that word. In fact, that word is derived from a little word in First Thessalonians. So, we have looked at that period of time. Immediately after the rapture, or shortly after, there will be a seven-year period of time that there are literally hundreds of passages that pertain to that period of time. So, we went somewhat slowly there. And now we're looking at Verses 29 through 31, which is a description of the second coming. And in that, last, or two weeks ago, we looked at verse 29, gigantic disturbances. What God seems to be doing there is basically calling the world to attention, blacking everything out, sun not giving its light, therefore the moon does not reflect its light, stars from heaven are darkened and falling, so with that backdrop, we have the next verse where we have the glorious appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And every eye will see. In other words, it's not going to be hidden. You don't have to go into the desert. Don't, don't look for him in an inner room. Don't look for him there or here, as we saw in the preceding verses. In other words, it's going to be so spectacular, no one can miss it. And it's going to be glorious. It's not going to be like the first coming where Jesus came in humility. It's going to be very evident, very glorious. And we've been using some phrases, and we'll review them as well, to describe the glorious appearance. So, verse 30, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear 
vividly, manifestedly, will appear in the sky. So everyone's going to see it. You're not going to need an iPad. You're not going to need a television set. It's going to be very evident, very external. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And I think it includes believers, unbelievers, Jews and non-Jews. The unbelievers, because they will realize that they have lost out on everything for all of eternity. Believers will recognize how sinful they are and how the grace of God has covered that. But there'll be a sense of regret. And particularly Israel, regret that all of this could have happened. The Lord could have appeared in the first century had they received their Messiah. In other words, he did appear in humility, but he would have appeared in glory had the nation of Israel responded. And he could have brought about what he's going to bring about immediately at this appearance. So all of the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will, if you didn't get it the first time, they will see the Son of Man. Notice two emphases in the same verse concerning the appearance of the Lord, and it's going to be glorious. They will see the the Son of Man coming. Now, that's about where we left last time. The little phrase, Son of Man, where does that come from? This is Jesus' favorite description of himself. Son of man. Uh, It implies that, but it has a more direct reference. So, yeah, son of Adam or humanity. But I think there's a more specific reference that Jesus is referring to here. Not Ezekiel. No, you're close. Sounds like, looks like... (laughs) Close to Ezekiel. Daniel, very good, very good. Remember in the passage, in fact, we'll look that up. Why don't you look that one up, David? Uh, Daniel chapter 7, where I think we have the same thing going on. Daniel chapter 7. And the little phrase there is the Son of Man. And I think that's where Jesus gets it. And when Jesus is using it, I think he's referring to that passage as well as particularly in other contexts, this whole concept that he's not only fully God, 100% God, but he's also fully man. 13, we'll, we'll get to it in a moment. So they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So the morning we were looking at last time, we said the despair of the unbelievers, chapter 6 of the book of Revelation probably pictures that. I think it's at the same time frame verse 15 through 17, and Zechariah, which I think Jesus is alluding to in this passage, in verse 30, is Zechariah 12, is one of the passages. And we read that last time, and that clearly refers to Israel on the occasion of their repentance, on the occasion of when they are converted. And there's hundreds of passages that refer to Israel's repentance and conversion. It'll take place throughout that seven-year period of time, and it'll be somewhat climaxed towards the end. In other words, there'll be some that it'll snap. Okay, I get it. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah in the first century. Jesus is the Messiah now, and now he's going to appear, and now all of the hopes of Israel are going to be fulfilled in terms of the millennial kingdom. And I think 
in this context, I think both are in view, just as Revelation 1-7. Somebody look at that one. We didn't get to that passage last time. This is where we left off. Connie's feverishly looking, so I'll let Connie... You got it? Now, this is the introduction to the whole book. And he gives us a preview. John gives us a preview of what he's going to kind of expand upon when he gets to chapter 19. Behold, he's coming with clouds, then what? And every eye will see, and also pierce him. Okay. Then he will come. And I think what uh, John is doing in Revelation 1-7 is giving us kind of a kind of a preview here. And I think he's quoting at least part of, and probably combining that with the Daniel passage that, we're, that Dave's going to read. So in Revelation 1-7, kind of very similar to what we have. Just a preview. In other words, this is where I'm heading in this book. And in chapter 19, we have the explanation of it. And the parallel passage in uh, in the Olivet Discourse is verse 30, the passage we're looking at. So, Zechariah 12 is probably combined in, in the Olivet Discourse with Daniel 13, 14. You want to read both those verses? I saw in the night vision, behold, one like the Son of Man. There you go. One like the Son of Man. In other words, here is a vision that Daniel has. Now, keep in mind the context. Remember the context of Daniel 7. We looked at that months ago. Does anyone remember? What else is described in Daniel 7? Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 are parallel. Two different images, two different visions, but of the same thing, essentially. Does anyone remember? Yes. Very good. A synopsis of world history. That's a good way of putting it where he lays out these major world empires. And then at the end of that is what we have in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And we have this last kingdom, this last empire. And it's God's empire. It's a millennial kingdom. Go ahead and read some more out of that. And notice Son of Man. Son of Man, that's where Jesus, I think, gets it. Sorry about that. Go ahead. Well, like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancients of days, and they brought him before him. Okay, stop there. Who's the ancient of days? The Father. You want a Trinitarian passage in the Old Testament? There's one. It doesn't mention the Holy Spirit, but it mentions uh, the Father and the Son of Man. The ancient of days and Jesus Christ, ultimately. Keep reading. And there was given him dominion, glory, all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that, that which shall not be destroyed. Okay, what's the focus of verse 14? Millennial kingdom. In other words, the Son of Man, when he arrives, Jesus is describing this, will establish a rule, a dominion, a kingdom. Did you get all those words in that verse? That is the millennial kingdom, and it's only John in the New Testament that tells us it's millennial, and he stresses it because he refers to it six times in Revelation chapter 20. That's the only place in all of the Bible that it is called a millennial or a thousand-year reign. So Mary is this the period of time when, they, uh, when uh, David was looking and talking about making your enemies your footstool? And all yes. That is that kind of time? 
Yeah, that all ties in. Yeah, and part of it is on the occasion of the second coming, where all the enemies will be dealt with, essentially. The last enemy in 1 Corinthians is death, and that will be dealt with at the end of the thousand years. So I think what we have in the passage is a combination of Zechariah 12.10, which refers to the mourning aspect, and also Daniel 7.13 and 14 that speaks of the coming of the Son of Man, and a kingdom is given to him. You see that? That's, I think, in Matthew 24.30. So the second coming, just to kind of summarize what we had before, is not only sudden... It's going to come uh, by a surprise to many. It's also spectacular. It's within that backdrop of everything in nature being darkened. In fact, even the powers, even uh, constants, I think, even the laws of nature are going to be disrupted. And there's going to be a lot of uh, earthly disturbance as well. So it's going to be very spectacular. It's going to be visible. You will, it, it's going to be an appearance. Every eye will see visible. It's going to be bodily. In other words, the, the humanity, the Son of Man, we're going to see him in a glorified body. It's going to be a bodily return. Just as his ascension was a bodily ascension, so also, Jesus says, will be the return. And right to the same spot, the Mount of Olives. So it's going to be public, every eye. You're not going to miss it. The Internet's probably going to be disrupted anyway, so no iPad's going to help you. You're not going to need it. He will be there publicly, every eye, every nation, China, Indonesia, Africa, U.S., you know, everywhere, Mexico, whatever nation you can think of, publicly. David? Also, is at the same time about Jerusalem. Yes. It's not clear what's going on with all that in Revelation 21 and 22. But, um, well, Jerusalem's going to be transformed, if you read Zechariah 14, for example. Yeah, it's not clear to me what all that's going on, some of that future stuff. Connie? I can we didn't say we're going to see the Mount of Olives. We're going to see in the sky. In other words, yes, yeah, so he's going to bend light. All right. Yes. So the. That's Linda. She knows all this stuff. It has to be that the lines convert. It does in some Right. It has to be that the light rays convert on that side. It's one of the great... Yeah. Yeah, Linda can give you every little detail on that one. And <laughs> Yeah, so, in fact, uh, during the break, we may have her just give a lecture just on that point. Okay, so it's public... And you believe all this because it's biblical, right? In other words, it, it says so right there. Good. It's also, it says in that verse, with clouds. And I'm not sure exactly, but this is, seems to be an emphasis of all of the passages that we've looked at. And clouds are present in many of the passages relating to the second coming. 
And maybe the clouds might be a reminder of that Shekinah glory that we talked about last week. Whereas the sign is the coming itself, the clouds also include the Shekinah glory that Jewish people would uh, be familiar with from the Old Testament. That's just a suggestion. Who do you reflect? <laughs> yeah, you need to prepare a whole lecture and, yeah. So, this is an artist's conception of what it might be, and notice there's an army behind that. That's the next verse that we'll look at. So, he's coming in glory. Glory that we cannot even envision. On the clouds of the sky, with power. So, he's disrupted natural powers, and we're going to see that all the source of power is from him. So, with power. So, we're going to have a display, and I'm not sure exactly how that's going to be felt or understood or observed, however, but with power and great glory. So, it's a glorious appearance. So, with clouds, glorious, very, very glorious. So here's your, on your outline sheet, here's the contrast. The rapture on the left-hand part of the slide and the second coming. First of all, the rapture is imminent. And what we mean by that, this is a biblical doctrine. It means that there's no signs that precede it. It could have occurred in the first century. In other words, nothing needs to precede. The, the, the reestablishing of the nation of Israel, you know, there's no sign, nothing. Imminent, that's what we mean. At any time, any moment. doesn't necessarily mean immediate. It means there's nothing prophetically that stands in the way of the rapture. So it could happen before we finish this talk here. It could happen at night. It could happen in the morning. Now, it couldn't happen yesterday, but in terms of its appearance, imminent, that's what imminent means. The second coming, what word would you use to contrast that? Signs, probably plural. Signs, just like Linda's noting. Many signs. In fact, we looked at a list of them. Some of them Jesus speaks of. In other words, false Christ. Wars, rumors of wars. In terms of specificity within that period of time. After that signing of the covenant. In fact, the signing of the covenant would be a sign to Jews that were aware of Daniel, chapter 9. That would be a clear sign. The clock begins ticking at the moment that covenant is signed. So that would be a, a sign. The abomination that makes desolate, that's a clear sign. Daniel makes that clear. So the second coming is preceded by all these things that are very specific in Bible prophecy. In fact, you could even say Revelation chapter, all the way from chapter 6 to chapter 19 where it describes the second coming. All of those things in between are basically signs and God has been pleased to give us the book of Revelation so we have that data available before the second coming. None of that necessarily precedes, in fact, all of that would, uh, if our interpretation is correct, all of that would take place after the rapture. So the rapture is imminent. The second coming has signs. The rapture is pre-trib. What's the one to fill in the blank there? Post-trib, exactly. And that's the whole point here. Now, part of the reason I'm mentioning this contrast is not only because there's some confusion here, 
But post-tribulationists basically see a simultaneous rapture and a second coming. But I think the Bible makes distinctions, and these are the distinctions, or some of the major ones at least. The rapture is secret, and what have we been saying? Obviously the contrast. Very Very public, exactly. No eye is going to miss it. No person is going to miss it. The saints are translated, in other words, resurrected, and actually you might even say ascended. Translated, that's First Thessalonians 4, which makes that clear, that translation of saints. And the second coming is... Back on horses. Return on horses. Wow. She saw the picture. <laughs> Israel also is regathered. You can include that as well. But both ideas are there. Saints will return and also Israel regathered at the second coming. He comes in the air... Is there a contrast there? We meet him in the air, and the contrast is he sets foot on earth. Zechariah 14, very specific, on the Mount of Olives. Veiled and invisible, that one is very easy, right? Very visible, with glory and power. We meet Christ in the air, not so easy, we return with Christ on horses. Right. And what, what are we going to wear? He even has a fashion statement in the Bible there. White robes. Okay, saints to go to heaven. Saints will remain on earth for the millennial kingdom. See the contrast? Two different events. Rapture is a mystery, it says in the New Testament. Therefore, it's revealed in the New Testament. The second coming is all over the Old Testament in the Old Testament, and also in the passages in the New Testament that speak of the second coming. So those are some of the contrasts, and there's others as well. I don't know if this is a question or not, but what happens to those that are dead? Well, First Thessalonians 4 tells us those that have died already will, be, will rise first, and then we will be resurrected. Okay, just to go with that. So those who have died already, where are they right after they, where are they now? They're with Christ, is what Paul says. In other words, we go, in the church age, it appears that we go to be immediately with the Lord. Well, well, what Linda would tell you is that uh, time is part of the creation, and when we are resurrected, we go outside of time. So we go into an eternal state, so I think we go immediately to the Bema judgment seat in resurrected bodies. In other words, there's no holding place. The concept of a place of intermediate or that idea of temporary containment, Sheol, that's an Old Testament concept. It appears, now this isn't real clear, but it appears that in the New Testament we go immediately to be with the Lord. So we go outside of time, and we go into a totally different realm, or a totally different dimension, if you want to think of it that way. Kathy, did you have a... Number 10, you counted, huh? Mm-hmm. I can't remember off the top of my head, I'll have to look up. I've got about 14 of them, actually. Let me see, let me think of one that's not up there. You could say, in clouds and with clouds, slight, tiny distinction there. You could say that with the rapture, it deals only with believers. So here's 11. 
And at the second coming, it deals with both unbelievers and believers. You could say, if you want a twelfth one, Satan is cast to the earth. That's Revelation 12, during that seven-year period after the church is raptured. And then we know from Revelation 20 that Satan is bound for a thousand years. There's a couple more distinctions. Is that enough? So that's verse 30. Let's go through verse 31. And I want to leave a little time at the end to stir you all up. So verse 29, we have these gigantic disturbances that are the backdrop to verse 30, which is the glorious appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ that we just completed. And then in verse 31, we have the gathering of the elect. The gathering of the elect. And he will send forth his angels. And he will send forth his angels. Interesting. Now, if you study the Bible, one thing to keep in mind, and I was reminded of this, I went to a meeting, of an intelligent design meeting, and the whole talk dealt with kind of the attitude well, I shouldn't say the whole talk, but much of the talk dealt with the attitude that basically is prevalent throughout our culture. And unfortunately, it's prevalent amongst the believers as well because we adopt a non-biblical worldview unless we renew our minds and adopt a biblical worldview. But in the biblical worldview, there are two two realms, if you will. In the secular worldview, there's only one realm. That's the material realm. So everything is interpreted from the material realm's perspective. It's unbiblical. There is a spiritual realm that is populated with virtually millions of creatures, angelic creatures. The Bible makes that clear. So angels are involved. Everything is coming to consummation here. Angels are very much involved. In the book of Revelation, angels are highly involved as well during that seven-year period and now at the second coming as well. He will send forth his angels. They are instruments of service. They're individuals that do what God tells them to do. Both good angels and demonic angels. They're under the sovereign hand of God. He uses them. Here's an occasion where he's going to use them at the second coming with a great trumpet. He's going to send them with a great trumpet. So his coming is with angels. It's not only sudden, spectacular, visible, bodily, public, with clouds and glorious, but with angels. A great trumpet. In other words, it's going to be audible as well. So it's going to appeal to all of the senses. Unmistakable. We'll gather together his elect. So his elect, and the question is, who are they? And what's this weird word that we have a real big problem So it's with saints. Second coming is with saints. So he's coming in glory, and he's coming with his elect. So what I want to do is give you a brief kind of overview of this doctrine of the elect, since it appears here. First of all, we want to kind of ask the question, what is the reference here? Because I think it's it may be slightly different than in other contexts. But we still have the same, I guess, troubling controversy that a lot of believers have a hard time with. So he's coming with his elect. We'll come back to that. From the four winds, what do you think that's a reference to? Every direction. direction. And what he's probably talking about, the four points of the compass. East, west, north, south, 
That assumes that we're talking about the other side. Uh, it doesn't assume a plane. What it what it assumes it. it thing of being in a box. Yeah. Yeah. It's also somewhat Jewish and more metaphorical in terms of referring the four winds, four directions, or four geographical directions. You might say. I think that's the reference. In other words, everywhere. In other words, you could phrase it. Gather together his election everywhere. In other words, there's not going to be a place in the universe that is going to be omitted, basically. From one end of the sky to the other end. In other words, from one end of the horizon to the other end. In other words, as far as you can imagine, in terms of visibility, nothing's going to be left out. I think that's the stress of what we have here. In other words, every creature, no matter where. And because of that, I think this gives us insight into the elect that are in view here. We'll come back to that. Okay. So his coming, sudden, spectacular, visible, bodily, public, with clouds, glorious, with angels, audible, with saints, unexpectedly, that by itself is a great contrast to the rapture. Because the rapture is the opposite of all those things. Except those like Linda that have calculated it out to the very hour. Linda may be the only one if she were there. Let's take a look at this concept, and first of all, we have to look at the words, and I'm going to go real rapidly here. We could spend two hours on this doctrine alone to try to clarify everything. I'm going to try and do it in a few minutes here. The Hebrew word for elect, and in some context it's even translated that. Who wants to pronounce it for us? Bachar. You have to deep. Bachar. That's the Hebrew word. The Greek word, what's the Greek word? You can pronounce that one, right? Eklektas. Eklektas. What does it sound like? Elect. That's why it's translated the elect, because it comes almost directly from the Greek word eklektas. Now, there's a corresponding verb in both cases, both Hebrew. In fact, I've got the verb up there. To choose, the Hebrew word to choose. All right? What have I said about theological concepts or theological terms? Pardon me? Well, they have multiple meanings, but more than that... Yeah, in other words, every theological concept, every theological term has an everyday kind of common usage and an ordinary meaning. In other words, it's not always theological. And that's the case with both these words, the Greek one and also the, the Hebrew one. So it's used in a general sense, basically to choose something. And I want to give you some examples. Basically to choose virtually anything. In other words, you chose this morning to come to church. You made a volitional decision. And in that case, you could have used the word, if you were speaking Hebrew, bachar. I chose to come to church. I bachar church. I chose to come. That was a choice. That was a volition. That was a decision. So also the corresponding Greek word. So it's used in its everyday sense. For example, there's some examples of Hebrew word refers to choice men that go to war. There's several passages in the Old Testament that it's in that context where Bahar is there. And sometimes a military leader selects 
5,000 choice men, where the word is used in its verb form and its noun form, in the same context. In other words, these are individuals that have been selected out of many. That's the idea. To choose or to select something when there's different options. That's the meaning of the word in its everyday sense. It's used in the New Testament. Remember Mary and Martha? Mary, exactly. Mary chose what Jesus called the better part. In other words, she chose to have fellowship with Jesus. Martha chose what? Service aspect. Mary chose the better is what Jesus says. It was a decision. It was a choice. So it's used in that ordinary sense. And it's used commonly of people just making choices, make, exercising volition. Now it's also used very, very commonly. In fact, I was surprised at how often Bahar in the Old Testament, in fact, it's used more often in the Old Testament, God exercising volition. I was kind of surprised at that. Just did a word study. I've had all the other word studies in the Greek text, but I haven't done a Hebrew one. So, God makes choices. So, think of it in that term. Okay, so there's a general choosing. In fact, an example is there's several passages that refer to him choosing a place to dwell. A dwelling place. Now, we won't look these up for the sake of uh, time, but you might jot them down. You can look at them later. In Deuteronomy 12.5, it speaks of him choosing a place to dwell. A particular geographical place on the on the planet. Uh, not on Venus, not on Mars, not on some star, not on some dif- distant galaxy. A particular plot of land in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Deuteronomy 12.5. And there's several others, by the way. Yeah, that Deuteronomy 12, it refers to the temple. It's referring to the temple. And it's also in verse 11, verse 14, verse 18, verse 21, verse 26, just in that chapter, as well as verse 5, where God chose to dwell in a structure or in a temple. And it speaks of God choosing individuals in the Old Testament, and there are several examples of that. In fact, let's look up some of these. Somebody look up Nehemiah 9.7. Somebody else look up 1 Kings 11.34. And what Linda's got, Nehemiah, who wants, he's got, David's got 1 Kings 11. Now, besides these two, a very clear passage, in fact, it's, it's referred to in the New Testament, God chose Isaac over whom? Ishmael. Yeah, Ishmael. Remember, Ishmael is the firstborn. He had all of the rights of the firstborn. But God chose Isaac over Ishmael. God made a decision. God made a choice. Now, this doctrine, if you don't understand it correctly, I think it raises a lot of theological problems. Is this unfair? And that's one of the big big problems against the doctrine of election. But we see it, what I'm trying to emphasize here is we see the concept over and over and over and over in Scripture. And if there's a problem in terms of, for example, the Ephesians 1-3 passage, which if we have time we'll look at that one, where it talks about God choosing us as believers 
and passing over, well, it doesn't say passing over, but the implication is, is others are passed over. Somehow we think that is unfair. Well, what I'm trying to do is I'm going to lay a groundwork here to try to show you that this concept permeates Scripture. God makes lots of choices, and particularly individuals. So he chose Isaac over Ishmael, but also Jacob over Esau. And again, we have a little issue going contrary to the culture, but this is a choice that God made. We also have Aaron is chosen as priest, and the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood is chosen by God out of the multitude of tribes. In other words, it's a tribe of Levi that God is going to use for the priesthood. That was a decision that God made. And there are several passages that refer to that. It even refers to Saul as God's choice, even though that was the choice of the people. Does that make sense? And his reign was conditional on his obedience. So Nehemiah 9.7, what does that one say, Linda? You are God There it is. The God Bahar. The God who chose Abram. And brought him of No. No, I'm going to develop that as well. I think that's after the fact. Good question, though. So, Nehemiah 9-7 is God chose Abraham. Out of all of the other pagans, you could even say, in the Mesopotamian area, out of all of humanity, he chooses one. Makes a decision to choose one. David, you get all the time, too, for all sorts of reasons. Pardon me? I said, we do that all the time for all sorts of reasons. Yes. Choose this one instead of... A multitude of decisions, exactly. And keep in mind, Abraham, in the book of Joshua, is called a an idolater. He's a worshiper of idolatry in his pagan life, in his old life. God chooses him. David, you got First uh, Kings 11.34. I will not take the whole king out of his hand, but I will make him prince all the days of his life. David, my servant, sake, my chose. Okay, notice... This is on the occasion of the dividing of the kingdom. But God, the point I want you to notice there, a reference to whom and who is chosen? David. There's a choice. There's also a verse that speaks of Solomon. He was chosen. First Chronicles 28, 5 through 6. Solomon's God's choice. There's even unbelievers where the word Bahar is utilized in terms of God making decisions. An example of that is Romans 9 where it speaks of God choosing Pharaoh to accomplish what God intended in terms of the children of Israel. Isaiah 45, 1 through 4 refers to God choosing an unbelieving Medo-Persian king and he mentions it by name, Cyrus. Before Cyrus is even born, God chose him to do certain things in his plan. So he can choose individuals that are even unbelievers to accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish. The choice is made. Judas, was he chosen? Was Judas chosen? Yeah, Jesus chose the twelve. Jesus didn't choose the eleven. He chose the twelve. For a particular purpose. One of them went astray. So these are kind of choices. In the Old Testament, it's Bahar. 
In the New Testament, it's eklektas. Also, it's used theologically. It's used theologically. We have the categories. We looked at some of those last time. And I won't go over them, but we looked up 1 Timothy 5.21. There's what we could call elect angels. Now, it has nothing to do with salvation. What it has to do with is God chose to preserve a portion of the angelic realm. In fact, the majority, more than likely. God chose to preserve them in holiness. And he allowed the others to depart from him and rebel. We looked at the nation of Israel. We looked at these passages. Was it last time or several, a couple of weeks ago? Israel. And, and there's several passages where Bahar is used in reference to Israel. God choosing Israel. And in fact, the Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8 is a good one, Linda, since you've been talking about... Uh, no, we won't read that one, but notice it's not on the basis of anything in, in them. It's on the basis of his love and his sovereignty. Because there are rebellious peoples, what the verse even tells us. Yeah. Yeah, we'll answer that. Yeah, we'll get there. Even Jesus Christ. Oh, by the way, when we speak of Israel, we're talking about a theocratic or a national choosing. That doesn't mean that every single person that's part of the nation, it's looking at it corporately. The individuals, there are rebel, rebellious ones, unbelievers. So it's not in relationship to salvation necessarily. Okay? This choosing is national, theocratic, corporate. Out of all the other nations, out of many nations, he chooses one nation, the one that he produces through the individual that he chose. Even Christ. So it has nothing to do with salvation when it comes to Christ. He's the chosen one. And we looked at a couple of verses there. The verb form is used in Luke 9.35. Isaiah is a messianic passage that looks forward to this choice individual, Messiah. It's messianic. So it's not related to salvation in these other contexts. But it is, I think, in relation to believers. We have 1 Peter 2.9. During the church age, God made a choice... And in, in the First Peter, it looks like he's referring to the church corporately. Out of all of humanity, he has a choice in terms of the church. And Ephesians 1.3, I take it as individual. In other words, referring to individual believers. And that's probably the key passage here, and one that sometimes is troubling to some. In fact, let's read that one. Somebody look that one up. Ephesians 1.3. You got it? Blessed be Jesus Christ, who blessed us every spirit. Blessed us. Who, who's the us? us. Believers. Us. Now, it's referring to the Ephesians, but because it's inspired, it has reference to all believers. Okay, keep reading. Bless us with every spiritual blessing, and now he's going to tell us of an important one. He chose us in him. The word, the verb form, in that context. When did he do it? Before the before creation. Before the foundation of the world. And it has a purpose that he lays out in the rest of the verse. Okay? So there's your key central passage. 
Now, we've been looking at passages in the tribulation, Matthew 24, 22, 24, and now in verse 31. That's not the church. So there are elect people that are not part of the church, just like there are elect people in the Old Testament that are not part of the church. Okay, here's the election doctrine. I'm going to go over this real quickly, and hopefully it'll satisfy all your questions and resolve all your controversies. Right? Here's the essential understanding, and here's where people get tripped up, because they overlook these other concepts. And we won't have time to develop them, but I'll go over them real quickly. First of all, you have to understand the nature of man, to understand the doctrine of election. What is man like? Wicked, sinful, depraved, condemned. Does God have any obligation to any individual on the face of the earth? No. No, because we're sinners. Yes, he did. Hmm? Except Christ. Because of covenants, because of what he has committed, but apart from that, okay, so what I'm getting at here, if he passes over some, and this is troubling to some, he should pass over all to be just. It's on the basis of grace that anyone receives anything from God. Okay. So you have to understand depravity of the nature of man, that God has no obligation to anything in man because of sin and because of losses. You have to understand the nature of God. God is just, so there's no injustice in the doctrine of election. God is wise. This is a wise plan, and he has a plan. He's just given us insight into it. God is loving. God is gracious. God is all of these things, and it's on the basis of that grace and that goodness that he acts towards uh, sinful, depraved creatures. And also, you need to understand the nature of salvation. Salvation from start to finish, and I think salvation begins in eternity past, from start to finish, God is the author of salvation. We simply respond. We simply believe. Okay? Those are essential doctrines that kind of lie behind that. And if you have a good grasp of those, then the doctrine of election just falls into place. Secondly, we can say God is holy. God is holy. Then says how you can right exactly very good. God is holy. God is righteous. God is wrathful. God judges. God is very good. All of who God is. Put it all together here. The problems. The problem is. Some, and I don't have time to get into detail, but it seems like there's some unfairness there, but if God is just, then there's no unfairness. It seems like, how can God pass over some? Does he play favorites? No. The Bible says God does not do that. God just knows who's going to That's one of the problems, huh? <coughs> and there's different views. In fact, Marlene is expressing the most common view is that God, in his foreknowledge, looks forward... And he says, oh, okay, Craig's a good guy. I'm going to choose Craig. Craig's going to believe in me in the future. I'm going to choose him. Because I know he's going to choose me, so I'm going to choose him. That's not the way I view it. Okay, but that's probably the most common view. Because we have this sense that somehow, another problem is the, the issue of volition. Do we have volition? And I would say, yes, God does all of this without violating volition. In other words, we have choice. This is one of those doctrines that there's some tension there, admittedly. 
two truths set side by side that almost seem inconsistent. But both have to be true because I think the Bible teaches both. It's one of those doctrines. So there's different views. This is my statement of the doctrine of election. Let me go over it somewhat quickly. Election is a work of God. God is the one that chooses. That's clear all over. Alone, God alone, based on his character, based on his grace, based on his justice, based on his wrath, based on his holiness, based on everything that he is, and for it has a purpose, for his glory. So it's a glorious doctrine. This is my statement, by the way. Without regard to anything in man. That's the key. That's the key. That's the controversy. That's the kicker. It's not God in foreknowledge looking ahead and saying, Connie's going to choose me. Connie's kind of nice. I kind of like her. I, you know, it's none of that. Oh, she's not? Oh, you'll have to tell me later. Okay. And there's a lot of passages that support that concept. In fact, when it talks about, in Romans, it says before, uh, I think it's Jacob, before anything happened in his life, God had already chosen him. So it's not on the basis on anything in man. Election is the work of God alone, based on his character and his glory, without regard to anything in man, where he chose some sinners, some. And the emphasis is sinners, depraved. God had no obligation. He simply did it for his glory. Make sense? And he did it in eternity past, the Ephesians 1-3 passage. Before he even created, he already made choices. And what we do, we simply respond as the gospel comes and God convicts us and convinces us of our need, illumines our minds such that we realize there's no other option except Jesus Christ, otherwise I remain condemned. And we simply trust. But he already made choices in eternity past. Make sense? To say that uh, in eternity past, to be saved, and there's an end product to it. Glorification. That's my statement. I witness. That's one of the problems. We witness because he told us to. Because he wants us to be involved in this big plan. And he uses us as instruments to accomplish what he has determined. Still his decision. Yeah. And we should praise him, not only for this doctrine, but for everything else. Praise our Lord that we come, will come with him because he chose us in eternity past. That's unimaginable. Who wants to close for us? Kind of. Amen. Thank you, Connie.